This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, executive producer of the acclaimed documentary, Most Likely to Succeed, and author of the best-selling book, What School Could Be. My name is Josh Rapoon, and this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. Season one of this podcast series was hugely successful with more than 13,000 downloads in 39 countries worldwide. Clearly, we tapped into a global hunger for ideas and stories from creative, imaginative, innovative, and curious educators and education leaders engaging students across the Hawaiian Islands. Today, I'm proud to say we are launching season two with an incredible guest I'm privileged to call a friend and colleague, Matthew Lynch. Matthew currently serves as the Director of Sustainability Initiatives for the 10 campuses of the University of Hawaii System. He also serves as the President of the Board of Directors at Kahumana Organic Farm and as Sustainability Measures Co-Chair on the Board of Directors for Hawaii Green Growth, which is a public-private partnership. The Office of Sustainability functions as a backbone organization working across UH campuses to complement, support, and enhance the incredible sustainability work that has been emerging over the past decade. Matthew's office provides coordination capacity for campuses to share information and resources with each other and accelerate action to strengthen the environmental, social, cultural, and economic health of our island's communities. Matthew and I first met back in 2016 when Ted Dintersmith, the author of the book this podcast is inspired by, hosted a meeting of educators and community leaders at PBS Hawaii. I recorded this interview back in April using Zoom, so the audio is a little sketch, but wow, did Matthew and I cover some ground. If you enjoy this episode, please give us a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And now, here's my conversation with Matthew Lynch. Matt, welcome to our podcast. Thanks so much, Josh. Our format is 10 questions. So the following 10 questions are for you, Matt. So let's jump into question number one. We are currently in Hawaii um, experiencing a version of the COVID-19 crisis. As we talk today, Matt, Hawaii is imposing a form of shelter in place statewide, which could last six weeks or more. We don't know at this point. So you're on the faculty of the T.H. Chan School of Public Health at Harvard University. Um, So what are your thoughts about this moment in the context of sustainability and community resiliency? Well, let's just start with a really big question, shall we? Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, first I'll note, I'm like uh, guest faculty there. Um, Okay. And um, it's interesting that you bring that up because that work that we explore through the Executive Education for Sustainability Leadership Program has been front and center in my mind as we, over the last 10 days, really. 
So I'm just going to speak quite frankly. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> all the, uh, I'm uniquely positioned um, at the University of Hawaii in that I am, I sit in administration, um, but I'm fortunate and I'm required to maintain relationships and connections to both students, faculty, and researchers. Um, it's the nature of sustainability. It's, cross, it's transdisciplinary. It cuts across silos. Um, and so the best available information that the best minds of the university are accessing and sharing with me um, show that our current response to the COVID threat is vastly underwhelming. Um, and with each misstep that we do, um, literally more lives are lost. So I've been really thinking a lot about some of the concepts that we explore in the Harvard program, which are really about reimagining the social architecture of our decision-making structures so that we can help our organizations and especially our legacy institutions to become more agile in how they create conditions for idea flow to be facilitated through their structures. And what we're really seeing right now is a situation where the legacy command control um, decision-making infrastructure is failing us. Um, that's one thing that COVID really reveals is all the weaknesses and brittleness in our systems. Um, so through my connections and relationships with networks of networks and with um, people who are working at all different aspects of this response from grassroots community efforts to make masks, face masks and face shields, all the way up to public health level um, subject matter experts trying to get into the governor's inner circle to get this to get better information so they can make better decisions. Um, we've been trying to like use every, every play that we've learned through the collective experience that um, is emerging or not the collective experience, but uh, the collective set of tools, strategies, techniques, and pattern language that's emerged um, throughout the world as we try to, as we wrestle with um, evolving our institutions to, to facilitate idea flow. So we're kind of like, <laughs> I mean, we're seeing firsthand how existing command control structures are not up to the tasks of this kinds of challenges. And we as humans operate, um, we create operating systems um, innately that are both command control and that are adaptive or networked. Um, and so you and I participate both in command control, command control structures and adaptive networked operating systems simultaneously, whether yeah. we're aware of it or not, right? And what's interesting is that each of those human operating systems do certain things really well and certain things really poorly. And the strengths of each one tend to mitigate the weaknesses of the other. So command control is really great at scaled efficiency and implementation. What it really sucks at is adaptive response and sharing information and allowing information in so that it can sense into its context and adapt, right? So a lot of the work with the Harvard Executive Ed for Sustainability program is to reimagine not these as two separate human operating systems that kind of bump up against each other and have conflicts, but as two interdependent 
almost omnipresent entangled systems that we are participating in, whether we're aware of it or not. And if we can become aware of it and understand how they can better work together, we can actually first start to describe these things, then be able to describe the tools, techniques, strategies that we use to facilitate that flow so that we can then build a shared lexicon, a shared context so that we can develop and be more precise with the specific things that we do to facilitate that. Wow, that's so interesting. Matt, Matt in, in Hawaii in particular, what are some of the resiliency points, if you will, or elements of resiliency that make us here out in the middle of the Pacific particularly resilient to a public health crisis like this one? Yeah, yeah we're witnessing some of those firsthand. Um, and I'm going to paraphrase what a friend, dear friend and colleague of mine, um, I've heard him say often, is that islands are the best teachers. Um, mm. It comes from, I've heard Kamala Eno say that an awful lot. Um, and, you know, you think about it, um, the first um, Polynesian settlers of these islands, you know, navigated to this place with whatever they brought in their canoe and, you know, had to learn first to survive within, uh, with very limited resources and with very, within very specific biophysical constraints, right? And over time, they actually learned how to not just survive, but to thrive and flourish. Um, so in the context of the Hawaiian Islands, we have at least 3,000 years of R&D of how to not just survive, but to thrive and flourish within the context of Pacific Islands. Um, and then you think about, for example, the academy, think about the institution of the university, and the university has a rich 200-year history. Um, so you have a house of knowledge that has 200 years to draw from, you have another house in this bioregion anyway, right, that has 3,000 years to draw from. And understanding the ways that they are similar and different and can be complementary and enhance each other, um, I see as a critical part um, of our work and I see as like a key task for the university itself in these times. But to get back to your question, like, what are the ways that we see community resilience, especially in times of duress like we're in right now? Um, it's, it's hard to describe, right? Like if you live here, you kind of know. <laughs> yeah. And when people visit here, they're like, what is the Aloha spirit doesn't quite like fully explain what it is. But if you live here, you know, we just know that we look out for each other. Um, and that's some of the lessons that we have learned and have been passed down intergenerationally that are just necessary for survival within an island's context. Um, mm. I read a great piece talking about um, just the greeting protocol on Pacific islands and the notion of when you are living in such a small space with such small feedback loops, um, you recite your genealogy so that you can identify points of connection so that you reduce the opportunities to be perceived as other. Um, and so that is, these are responses, these are survival responses that are developed in response to our specific environment. Um, so a lot of this, it's almost implicit, you know, it's cultural, it's embedded in just the ways that we do things. Mm -hmm. um, so like, I'm always fascinated and seeking to try to distill um, 
what I observe in the world around me into patterns and then to try to deduce principles from them. Mm. Um, so I haven't done that thought exercise with like local culture. Um, but what we do see, especially now is we see the expressions of those underlying patterns and principles where um, I, I'll just give three examples. Um, so uh, there's been a hui of restaurants and food providers get together, coalesce literally in the last few days. Um, and they've even put together funding resources to put up a website where folks can go to and connect to food resources, um, take out, pick up, or delivery um, within their communities. And that has just sprung up through the adaptive network, right? Um, but is also an expression of the underlying <clears throat> principle of islanders that we take care of each other. Um, and then the other two examples I mentioned briefly earlier is for those of us who are already paying attention to the growth curve, the growth rate, and where that trajectory takes us on the growth curve relative to our available capacity of hospital beds and more importantly, ventilators. Um, recognizing and anticipating there's gonna be a huge need for basic equipment like PPE masks and face shields. Um, we're already seeing um, across the islands, really, um, just, you know, aunties and uncles stay at home sewing and, um, right. It's really beautiful thing to observe and to participate in. So one last thought on that is when you have this organic emergence of response to a shift in an environment, right? Um, one key role I feel that we who are embedded in institutions that are kind of anchor institutions for community can and should play is to be nodes in that network so we hold unique perspectives and can identify, can, can bear witness to the network emerging um, and then play key roles in connecting these resources that are held in the networks to the appropriate nodes in the networks that need these resources, mm. if that makes sense. Absolutely. I think one of the things that I'm super excited about in this moment, you know, which is a terrifying moment, is that for years we've been building personal relationships among those nodes of these institutions and that there's some level of trust that's been built up. Um, and I'm excited about the fact that our networking response, that adaptive response will happen more effectively because people know each other and trust each other. And all of a sudden we're thrust into this moment. And it, so Matt, that actually leads me perfectly into question number two. Um, so I want to come at the COVID-19 issue uh, from a different angle, but an angle that's very close to your core, I think. Um, Bill Mollison, who's an Australian researcher in environmental psychology, said this about permaculture, and I quote, permaculture is a philosophy of working with rather than against nature, of protracted and thoughtful observation rather than protracted and thoughtless labor, and of looking at plants and animals and all their functions rather than treating any area as a single product system. So you, Matt, you've written on Medium about permaculture, and I, I went through that. It was fascinating. So here's my question. What, what are your thoughts about this coronavirus crisis in the context of permaculture? I know that's a big one, but yeah, no, <laughs> so I we could do a whole episode that. just yeah. on that question. Yeah, but yeah. Appreciate that question, Josh. Um, and thanks for quoting Bill Mollison. He's been a huge influence <laughs> on me. He's, uh, like many of us, he's a flawed human. Um, and I also, you know, so I both acknowledge that and appreciate the contributions that he's made. 
That's right. actually one of my favorite Mollison quotes. <laughs> um, yeah. So in the so he, I'll start. I'll start here. I've come to understand permaculture as a white man's attempt to reconnect to his indigenous roots that he'd been severed from. Um, and permaculture was my introduction to systems thinking. It was also my introduction to reconnecting to my own indigenous ancestral knowledge systems that I, like so many of us, have been severed from. So um, just to unpack that a little further, I am, my dad is Irish Scottish and my mom is Filipino. Um, and so Filipinos, as you know, um, have suffered waves of colonization. Um, and um, we are, yeah, many generations removed from our, the intimate relationships um, with specific places that my indigenous ancestors, if I go far back up along my, my um, genealogy would have had. Um, so we're four generations in Hawaii and I wonder what conditions, um, what the conditions were that created the decision for my ancestors on my mom's side to leave a place that they had known for generations and come to another set of islands in the middle of nowhere to work as in indentured servitude as um, low-valued labor on plantations. Um, so my mom said I'm at least four generations separated from an intimate relationship with um, my ancestral homelands. Um, and on my dad's side, I'm many more generations removed. So descended from um, Irish and Scottish convicts that were kicked out of their homelands and sent to the bottom of the earth from their perspective anyway, um, to also work in indentured servitude, presumably for stealing a loaf of bread or some other survival play. Um, so I share my history, not because it's particularly special or unique, but in hopes that your listeners might hear Connection Point um, and in hopes that we can start to understand that we are all entangled in unhealthy systems. And the root of those, um, that dis-ease, the root of that unhealthiness um, stems from uh, that disconnect that all of us have had, or many of us have had, not all of us, because in Hawaii, right? One of the unique aspects of Hawaii is you have an indigenous peoples that not only persists to this day in spite of incredible, incredible odds, right? And adversity, um, they not only persist, they thrive and they flourish. And like so many first peoples and indigenous peoples around the world, are some of the few remaining voices that are defending our, our mother earth, you know? So my journey that started in permaculture and ostensibly started with me trying to understand food systems um, and introducing me to systems thinking has evolved and led to this deeper exploration of me trying to understand the larger unhealthy systems that we're entangled in trying to identify the root causes of those, trying to understand the kinds of intergenerational trauma that someone like myself must carry as a result of that severance from that intimate relationship and grappling with exploring um, 
ways that I can facilitate my own personal healing through that. And what's fascinating to me is reconnecting and rebuilding relationship with this place, with Hawaii, um, is not only um, has sort of specific strategic and tactical advantages when we're talking about growing more food or building community resilience in my immediate neighborhood, um, it's also deeply healing for me. And so it becomes this kind of fractal impact, right? Where it's nature is just so full of not even dichotomies or I prefer to think of them as like entanglements or tensions of, of seeming opposites. Right. But it's not a binary. Um, it's far more complex than that. Um, so how do we hold all of these creative tensions and seeming competence in some kind of balance where we can flow? Um, and that, um, that's sort of where my, my journey from, from permaculture has has evolved to you know so so this is a moment matt where uh, some some an understanding of these kind of two systems the the permaculture and the non-permaculture the product-based um, systems might possibly give us um, a thoughtful look a walk through the door to have a discussion about what could emerge in the future as this crisis unfolds and the curve is finally flattened and we get to the other side, that people might understand that this was a very complicated thing that happened. And, and to honor that through thoughtful discussions about what permaculture is, maybe not using those words, but you know what I'm asking? It's like um, we have a moment, we have an opportunity here to look at this as not just like, you know, this, the house is on fire and as soon as the firemen put it out, we'll be back to normal again. We have an opportunity to think about ourselves as in either a healthy or unhealthy relationship with our surroundings and our, yeah. and our culture. You know, one of the, the principles of permaculture that really resonates with me um, and that is a translation of indigenous practices is this one of protracted and thoughtful observation or observing and interacting with nature. That is a Western interpretation of what many indigenous peoples you know, carry as core to the, way that, the ways that they be, the ways that they think, the ways that they do. Um, the term that I'm familiar with in Hawaiian language is kilo. Um, and this, you're absolutely right, like it would behoove us we need to take immediate action in response to the immediate shift to make sure that our personal safety and well-being is taken care of um, and be mindful of those that don't have aren't afforded the privilege and opportunity to be able to do that um, and um, take this opportunity to really sense into what's happening and be really fully present as we can in each possible right. moment because in nature and in natural systems when in organisms environment shifts right if it is doesn't adapt and take steps to notice that is happening yeah. then evolutionary processes just run their course and the organism is no longer fit to its context and it it risks extinction right um so as a human species as a um super organism we are literally a super organism across the planet it would behoove us to pay attention to how our environmental conditions have shifted and to maybe slow down enough to understand, huh, what got us 
here in the first place. So we've been thinking a lot in our office about like, what's the relationship to the climate crisis and to COVID? Um, and we pause and think about it. Think about, we think about the root causes of the climate crisis as you can directly trace the climate crisis to emissions that are produced from overconsumption of goods, tie it directly to not only extractive models of global capitalism, but the consumer culture that's also um, associated with that, that the intentional manipulation, the intentional manufacturing of consent for the accumulation of fiat currency, right? And what's underlying that? How could we possibly treat each other and our Mother Earth that way if we did not see each other and Mother Earth as separate and apart. So the root cause of global extractive capitalism and consumer culture, you can trace back to the othering of self, the separation of self from the natural world. So the roots are in racism and in, <clears throat> in othering. And let's think about COVID right now. So what, have, what create conditions have we created to facilitate, first of all, the species jump of yeah. this pathogen, right? Um, I just read a great article in Scientific American that was talking about like, this is like not a surprise and likely the first of many if we continue along our current trajectory of expanding our human footprint into pristine places where you have humans that have never interacted with certain microbes before coming into contact Right. And boom, conditions yep. are right, especially with global trade and with the mobility that we have for what we are experiencing and living through right now, surviving through right now. Right. Um, so using that simple logic, we can similarly trace the root causes back to this severance of self, the trauma that is carried intergenerationally and unconsciously, which makes it even more insidious, right? Um, manifests itself on mass in these kinds of situations. And to go back to that fractal we were talking about earlier, you know, so here's one of those things that, that these tensions that are, I don't know, they're, they're, they're seeming opposites, but they're both true, right? And how do we hold them in the same space? So yeah. we are simultaneously, right, massively impacted by our environment, especially as humans, as social beings. We vastly underestimate how much free will and free agency that we have because we vastly underestimate how much our decisions are influenced by the social um, infrastructure that's around us. Um, the, other, the opposite is also true. So we are simultaneously massively affected and shaped by that environment, by that social cultural context. Um, and we simultaneously have agency to impact it right but they're seeming opposites so we're massively insignificant and massively significant all at the same time right we'll come back to that conversation a little bit later when we talk about k-12 schooling uh, i promise but for the moment um we're going to shift direction just a little bit but uh, sorry this is another one of those those big questions so um in, in, in big and broad terms, Matt, before we dive into your specific work um, at the University of Hawaii, I want to zoom up to 30,000 feet. Um, in your mind, what should the core function of higher education be? 
what should higher what should be higher education's central purpose? And I, I, I guess I would add in here, like, if you could wave your magic wand, <laughs> and higher ed would oh, suddenly Lord. become what you wanted it to be, what what is that core function of higher education? Yeah. Well, I, I, um, God help us if that magic wand is ever given to me. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, or to me. Yeah. 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 Um, and I, I think that if it were, then I would, be, that my first instinct would be to find the smartest people I knew <laughs> to help weigh in on that to, so that it's not just a individual decision that's being made. Um, it's interesting that you asked this question and I'm kind of chuckling because the start of this semester, I posed a question um, to many of our best um, scientists and thinkers and scholars. And in, um, we send out like a, a email update maybe twice a semester. Um, and so in, at the start of spring, we sent out one that invited folks to participate in a virtual think tank. Um, that's hosted by Krista Heiser, who directs our Center for Sustainability Across Curriculum, right. who you should definitely have on this podcast, by the way. <laughs> I, I would love to. I, yeah. <laughs> um, and the question that we posed was, in light of anticipated climate disruptions, how must the university transform to remain relevant to its context? And wow. so I'm don't have all the answers. That's the first thing that I think would behoove all of us to recognize. I have some answers and they are relevant to some contexts. Um, I think that we need to be actually asking ourselves better questions. Like the questions that are being asked at senior leadership levels are, what are recruitment? What are re enrollment? What are retention numbers? What are graduation rates? What are, what are all these performance metrics? And I understand command control needs and thrives on goals, metrics, these kinds of things, right? Um, and there's that old um, uh, management axiom, right? Measure what matters. Um, right. You can't measure, you can't manage what you're not measuring. Um, well, let's make damn sure that we're measuring the things that actually matter, right? lest we go down a tangent that actually gets us further from where our end goal is. So I suspect that part of the answer to that very big question that you're asking and that we're asking some of our brightest minds are, how can we create students that are equipped with the knowledge, with the skills, with the experiences to prepare them to not just survive, but to thrive and flourish in the face of massive uncertainty, because this is the context of our times. And if we start asking that question, I wonder, <laughs> I know we will be amazed at the kinds of creative responses that we will get to that. But until we start asking the right questions, yeah. we're not gonna be getting answers that are relevant to our context. So am I getting that you're saying that one of the core functions of higher education should be or could be the, the generator of the best questions that we can ask ourselves as a culture? That, that's what the environment could be. At a bare minimum, um, I think the notion that um, we need to... <laughs> 
equip the universities to um, bestow degrees so that our graduates and our children can get good jobs is so far out of line with the existing realities that that fundamental assumption needs to shift. Mm. Um, I'm inspired by other universities who have put forth sweeping statements such as we take responsibility for the well-being of our community. How's that for a mission statement? Wow. Like that is, and what other conversations then does that lead to? Mm. Right? Right, right. So, okay, so I have a follow-up question to this. Um, and I, I don't, I don't, this, I don't want a, our conversation to be dominated by COVID-19, but um, I read an article in Inside Higher Ed uh, or at InsideHigherEd.com that suggested COVID-19 will permanently shift how, I, how higher education thinks about remote work. Um, that we are suddenly in this very explosive moment where everybody's notion of going to work suddenly has had to change very radically. Um, and you mentioned just a minute ago that, you know, the very low bars that higher ed is preparing you for a world of work or at least accelerating what you might have been doing in K-12. So what are, your, what are your thoughts about that? Is it possible that higher ed may emerge out of this COVID-19 crisis with a, a new conception of who needs to be on campus and who doesn't? Well, if higher ed doesn't wake up to that, then we're, we're in trouble. <laughs> we're in more trouble than I thought. <laughs> um, right now, our environment is signaling, right? We need to, it's forcing us to do this. Um, and so we're going through a paradigm shift. Um, and it's painful and it's scary right now. Um, and the nature of paradigm shifts is once you're on the other side, you're like, wow, how could it have ever been the other way, you know? Right. Um, so shift has happened. Absolutely. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And from a um, emissions perspective, like, which I think they're important conversations to have, but if you're not talking about root causes, then you miss the, you miss the boat, right? So let's just go from a really superficial level. Remote learning can reduce emissions, right? That's a fairly no-brainer. So from a really basic sustainability perspective, we should be thinking about that. Right. From a pedagogical perspective, and this is something that um, I have colleagues at the university that are much deeper experts on this, I'll defer to them. Um, my um, limited understanding of evolving pedagogies, especially with millennials and with digital natives um, and narrowing attention spans, um, is that uh, you, <laughs> the days of talking to, you know, Charlie Brown style lecture from the front of the classroom with a chalkboard um, are, they're just, they're obsolete largely because the youth of today, they're wired differently. Um, and so they, we, we did a two year student focus group study, um, which we talked to over 200 students across seven campuses, um, mostly community colleges, mostly first and second year students um, from a wide variety from like continued CTE instruction from auto mechanics to sustainability studies to everything in between to English, you know, and we were interested to hear more about what students know, think, do and feel about climate change, sustainability, and resilience. And so, you know, climate, climate crisis, the existential threat of our times, 
what do you think the number one source of information that they cited is of where they learned about climate change? Wikipedia. No, that no. would have been maybe number three. So oh, number okay. four, dead last was college teachers, their college faculty. Wow. Um, and encouragingly, it was often like a specific instructor mm. that had made a deep impact on them, right? And just like opened their eyes to this. So that was encouraging. <laughs> um, what was really sobering, the number one source that they cited was from their own lived experience. So these are 20 something year old students, some younger, saying that in my lifetime, I have had an experience that I can directly connect to a climate crisis. Wow. We heard stories like, wow. I was eight years old and my grandma was crying at the kitchen table and I asked her why and she said that she was sad because she couldn't feed me in the same way that I had fed my mom. And wow. they had linked that to climate. So the second, third, fourth resources had to do with what we termed active media, um, which is media, you know, social media, media that's pushed to you, right? Uh, passive media, media that you actually have to make an extra effort to go out and consume. So, you know, newsstands, magazines, or a website that you actually have to look up that's not pushed to you. Um, conversations with others, their peers. Um, there were a few responses that literally said at the bar, <laughs> hopefully from our uh, uh, more mature students. <laughs> um, so what one thing that that also revealed to us was some really key insights is to the, the dissonance that students experience when they're in the classroom, these experiencing these more traditional, quote unquote, traditional ways of, of instruction. Right. Um, one of the most um, compelling and disturbing examples of this was, um, do you remember when the Las Vegas mass shooting was going down? Um, so we had students tell us that they're sitting in a lecture with the professor, watching these events unfold live on their Snapchat feed. And the instructor not knowing, right, what's going on in, wow. in their world right at that moment. Mm -hmm. And then knowing that the instructor probably is not going to learn of this until they go home and, you know, watch wow. the news or check in on their laptop or whatnot. That kind of a dissonance all points at us to, we need to radically rethink how we're delivering this content. Mm -hmm. um, so some of our core activities have been around professional development for faculty. And it not only includes um, sort of like online or hybrid learning environments, um, but also incorporates things like active pedagogies, things like service learning, things like problem-based or solution-based or all the other um, jargon and you know acronyms yeah. that come out to, to describe these different modalities, um, which I have found useful to summarize as we teach to the issues of our times, then we shift that dissonance into residence. Yeah. We make learning relevant to students' lived experience. Okay, cool. So that's a good segue to, to the next question, which happens to be question number four. So um, let's talk about your specific work in higher education. Um, I can only imagine the journey that you've been on uh, that led you to the position that you hold today. Um, so my question is actually kind of specifically around something that I'm super interested in, which is skills and habits and dispositions. 
Um, so what are the highlights of that journey that led you to the, to the position that you hold today? What skills, habits, dispositions prepared you to take this position as Director of Sustainability Initiatives for the University of Hawaii campuses? <laughs> That's a great question, Josh. I'm glad you asked that. <laughs> there is uh, no logical reason or rationale to explain how I, with my very non-traditional, very unique path, have landed in this position at a university, no less. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, let the cat out of the bag here. It's no big secret. I don't, I don't hide it at all. I don't have any academic qualifications. My path was very non-traditional. By age 19, I was working for Bank of America, one of the largest financial institutions um, in the United States, if not the world. Um, and I was very fortunate in that um, I had a really strong early education, which I cannot discount. So I was the beneficiary of attending a fairly, a very elite private school in Melbourne, Australia. Um, where the, while the instruction was really great, um, I <laughs> had to grow up very quickly because I was bullied very badly. Um, and so there was an emotional resilience um, that was started to be built there. Um, really in my 20s, I was just very angry and had a point to prove um, to all the folks that had bullied me that I was worth something. And the, my pathway to choose how to express that was to figure out how to go and make a lot of money. Um, and so, you know, my 20s had a tenure career in mortgage banking and real estate finance, um, which crashed with the uh, global financial crisis 2008. You've heard this, so they give you the Cliff Notes version. Um, but the key things that I learned in that is number one, like sales, learning effective sales skills is learning effective communication. Like Indeed. President Trump is just a really clear example of that, right? If, if Say what you will about him and his atrocious policies. He is in his own strange way, a really powerful communicator and he right. leverages that. Um, so that's, that's really key, like um, learning the principles of influence um, so that first of all, you can identify when they're being wielded against you. Um, and second of all, so that you can utilize it to create conditions for productive conversation. So at its lowest expression, you learn the tools of influence. I learned the tools of influence to close a sale so I could get a commission. Um, as I grew and matured, um, I started to learn that you, understanding the tools of influence um, is the first step to be able to understand how to create conditions for productive group interactions, right? Mm. So many of us experience like death by meeting <laughs> on the daily, right? And very few of us have experienced anything approaching enlightenment by meeting, <laughs> yet it is possible. Mm. Few of us have had experiences of highly productive group meetings where we're like, wow, what, what, we, what did we just create together? Right. Well, there are certain principles that underlie that, that if you are aware of, you can build skills to consciously create those kinds of conditions that are conducive to maximizing group intelligence. Um, that are conducive to enhancing decision-making capacities and abilities. Um, so that's the, I learned that skill set much later on um, as I segued um, from um, financial sector into learning 
to be more of service into basically sort of community sector. Um, the other thing that I was really fortunate to learn in that ten year period is I learned the language of finance. And much as we may um, be dismayed or angered by the fact that our world currently, the current dominant paradigm revolves around money, um, that's just a statement of fact of existing conditions. So if we can understand that language and we can speak that language, it actually gives us much more agency. And that's really what gave me success early on in helping the existing leadership structures of the university understand this thing that they had never heard of called sustainability. Mm. <clears throat> In the first year, my entire focus was to help them understand how it would help their financial bottom line. Mm. So the, I was very fortunate in that my boss recognized that I needed some administrative support to help, <laughs> help counter the, um, bureaucratic processes and headways and give me some support there to free me up to focus on this more sort of connecting the dots and systemic mm. coordination. Um, the, the next position that we were able to successfully ad advocate for was our director of energy management. Um, and so through that position, one of the major wins that we've had is uh, at our flagship campus, UH Manoa, they've gone from less than 300 kilowatts of solar on our largest campus to um, just over a thousand, um, so just over a megabyte of solar that is currently online um, with another four megawatts that are in the, in the um, pipeline and were scheduled to be built over the summer though with COVID, we'll, we'll see how that impacts um, the delivery date on that. So do the numbers on the percentage increase in that at Manila campus alone. Um, we have made, prove the point that um, we can pay ourselves back, pay the investment back many times over already. Um, and that gave us enough cover to then be able to do the next layer of work, which the context of higher ed, all of that, all of the campus infrastructure, all of the buildings, all the solar panels, all of that stuff is there to support the higher mission of teaching, mm. learning, research, right? right. So, um, and there was a lot, at least a decade and a half, much more decade and a half work that built on, you know, decades of work mm -hmm. um, to help to shift curriculum towards basically being relevant, like to our teaching to the issues of our times. Um, right. Different ways and lenses that we do that from, um, whether it's sustainability curriculum, whether it's Aloha Aina, um, whether it's service learning, um, a common thread is that they're seeking to um, teach and speak to the issues of our time so that our students are better equipped. Mm. Um, and so that was the next place where we were able to focus limited bandwidth and capacity. Um, and that's where that group process design, because if you've ever worked with a group of faculty, <laughs> higher ed teaches us to be critical right? It teaches that even the language of the gauntlet that you poor academics have to run through mm. to get the credentials that certify that you're able to do these things that the institution says that you need to be able to do without any actual proof based on results, right? If, if you have the degree, doesn't necessarily matter what results you've created. Um, the degree in many times, especially in hiring, is going to get you that job, right? Mm. Um, right. So, um, you are you have to defend 
your thesis, right? Um, it's, it's this violent language. Um, and sustainability, or the challenges of our times, rather, um, and demand that we figure out how to collaborate radically. But right. nowhere in the lexicon of a liberal education or a higher education do we talk about the need to develop collaborative competencies. That's right. a completely different skill set. So I was just very fortunate to have this unique blend of skills through my lived experience that the university didn't necessarily recognize it. Certain individuals within the university recognized mm. that I might be a good match for this place at this time. Mm. Um, now that's obviously changed because that was uh, six, almost seven years ago now. And so we have created conditions that have changed as in nature. Um, and so we are, uh, as in nature, you know, things, there's a natural processes of succession and evolution. Um, so we're having conversations uh, about succession right now, about the things that we need to do given the way that the landscape has shifted and things have mm. evolved. And obviously COVID is going to be massively figure into that. This changes everything. Yeah. This we're literally living through a paradigm shift right now. And we don't know what things will look like when we come out, we are going to be fundamentally transformed. And if you and I have this conversation six months from now, I imagine we're going to be talking about very different things. Could be very different. Yeah. So perfect. Uh, just as a, as a side tangent and going back to what you said about working together in teams like that, I had this practically near religious experience in San Diego when I went to the deeper learning conference um, and I went to a breakout session, which was where one teacher was going to be presenting her work um, in a formal protocol. And I had never experienced a formal protocol like that before. And it just blew the top off for me. I could not believe how productive it was and how game changing it was for everybody in the room, everybody, a participant, everybody, a facilitator. It's, it's very, very cool. Um, so <clears throat> I'm going to shift here um, for question number five, and then we'll take a short break. So you and I, Matt, once had a conversation where you described what it would be like when a young person seeking a degree in sustainability finds out there is no such degree. Um, first of all, like how crazy is that here in the state of Hawaii? And I'm not sure if that's still true today at University of Hawaii, but I think it is, right? So, so my question is, how do you help that young person? puzzle together the coursework that ultimately results in quote unquote in air quotes here a degree or a batch whatever it is that you want to call it like what is the mechanism how does that work yeah wow that thank you for asking that because that's helps me to recognize how far we have come um, mm -hmm. because i often am caught in the we need to do more <laughs> we need to do more yeah um and so how many years ago did we have that conversation? Wow, five, five years um, ago. Mm -hmm. Okay, so current status of the university is there are five community colleges which offer a first-year academic subject certificate in sustainability, which students experience as a sustainability minor. Um, and there are now three campuses that offer fully-fledged um, bachelor's programs in sustainability studies. So. UH West Oahu offers the Sustainable Community Food Systems Program. Uh, UH Maui College offers the Sustainable Science Management Program. And UH Manoa just this uh, or next semester rolls out um, 
a BA in sustainability studies. Um, that's through their interdisciplinary program. And through, I think through SOAS, through the School of Ocean Engineering Science Technology, um, offer in their global environmental science program, offer a Bachelor of Science um, in, gosh, mm. I, I don't think it's quite termed sustainability, but they're offering it. So it's, I'll have to look that up and get back to you. Maybe we can put in the show notes. But basically, there's now four bachelor's programs that are with a specific focus on sustainability. Wow. Um, and there's That's now, epic. yeah, first year sort of interventions. Um, the first year intervent, the first year sustainability minors, by the way, were designed as specific interventions to close some of the climate literacy or sustainability literacy gaps that were revealed right. through the two year student focus group. Got it. Um, so um, but let's talk about what that actually means that students can actually come now and study sustainability because sustainability mm -hmm. means different things to different people. <laughs> the so, way that the way that you described it to me back then five years ago was that there might be an element of sustainability here in this English course or there might be something in this biology course, but there wasn't any particular straight pathway and so you would help them to figure out where is sustainability being addressed? And then you'd puzzle it together so that there would be some coherence to their process as they went through it. Yeah, man, you've got a great memory. <laughs> and that's still relevant to today. So um, there are a lot of sustainability-related courses, degrees, programs that, this, that the university offers. But just because you're learning about trees or you're learning about the ocean doesn't mean that you're studying sustainability. You're studying right. something that's related to sustainability. When we're talking about sustainability, we, we're talking about systems thinking and understanding entanglement in complex systems and understanding the ways that we can act to be able to create conditions to transform those unhealthy systems. So for example, in the Sustainable Community Food Systems Program, they're doing that through the lens of food systems. So they're, they're, they have a, like a a specific focus on food systems, but the underlying and all the, the content and the subject matter will be relative to food systems. What I love about that program is they combine this kind of rigor of like research with hands-on experiential learning of this, around the student garden. Um, so graduates of that program um, basically are equipped with a unique um, set of skills knowledge and experience that equip them to pick and choose where in the food system they would like to participate wow. to enact change wherever they're at, be that from the producer level to the policy level or anywhere in between. Um, and so that I think really helps to illustrate what, 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 when we're talking about sustainability, that's the hallmark of it. Mm. It's equipping folks with systems thinking ability with collaborative competencies um, with a skill set that equips them to be not only interdisciplinary, but to be transdisciplinary. So that you can pull together and synthesize just separate, you know, skills, strengths, bits of information to be able to solve specific challenges. Mm, wow. So, okay, so I'm just going to try to have a little playful moment here sure. um, but before, we, before we go to our break. So let's imagine, you know, for our radio audience, and that they're probably mostly educators out there, but it could be the whole spectrum from K through all the way through higher education. So let's say that I'm a university president and I'm getting into the elevator um, with you 
And you have this moment where you can make that sustainability degree pitch. Like literally you've got 45 seconds to make the pitch. Like what's the rationale for making that available to every student in every university and college in the country? Yeah. Go. <laughs> Go. Oh man. Yeah. My pitch, um, I, given the, um, uh, state I'm in <laughs> right now. <laughs> it's going to be the one of the darker pitches you've probably heard. <laughs> um, it, it, right now where I'm at um, is I'm kind of at WTF. <laughs> mm. um, and it just seems like such a no-brainer to me. I gave my annual report to the Board of Regents last year. Was um, I didn't know if I was going to have a job the next day. Wow. Um, and um, there's a transcript of it that I include a link to in my signature, my email now, <laughs> um, because I still have a job. So, you know, um, I guess that's a good sign. But basically what I said was, look, if we are losing resonance to our students' context, if we are losing relevance to our students' context, then what is the implication as a knowledge enterprise? What is the implication of that? losing relevance to our primary customers, to our bottom line. Right. This is an existential threat. And all of these other metrics, recruitment, enrollment, retention, engagement, graduation rates, if we are obsessing on those metrics without understanding the fundamental drivers of those, hmm. we miss the, we're managing the wrong thing. And I suggested, what if we were to identify these points of dissonance and start to design interventions that understood students' context enough to be able to shift that dissonance to resonance, mm. what might happen to all of those metrics? Mm. Yeah. I, I guess if I were to put my silver lining spin on what you just said, it would be that we have, yes, we have this existential moment, this existential threat, but at the same time, we have this stunning opportunity with all of the technologies that are available to us now and the communication mechanisms and everything else that we've learned and, and come to know about ourselves as a human species. We have this unprecedented opportunity to step through the door and to look at sustainability as just being this tremendous thing that um, we'll get into that in the second half here because I have some questions about that related to K-12. I, I just looking love there. how you Aikido that. <laughs> That was, that was beautiful. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So, hey, everybody, stay with us. After this short break, we will continue our conversation with Matt Lynch. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Hawaii's business people and professionals want to support our public high school students across the state, like me. Law Yagovich, a senior at Kuku High School. And Hawaii's teachers and other educators want classroom speakers, curriculum advice, contest judges, mentors, and other support from businesses and nonprofits. 
The Climb High Bridge is Hawaii Department of Education's official platform to connect the two communities. It's like Match.com, specifically designed to connect businesses and schools. Learn more by sending an email to info at climbhigh.org. That's spelled C-L-I-M-B-H-I dot org. Hi, friends. Toy Hirschman here from the EntreEd Talk podcast. I am super excited to support the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast hosted by none other than the amazing Josh Rapoon. And I also want to give a big shout out to all of the incredible educators in Hawaii who are doing unreal things in the entrepreneurship and design-based thinking spaces. I hope you all subscribe and listen to What School Could Be in Hawaii. And also, hey, why not check out the EntreEd Talk podcast where we interview stellar entrepreneurial educators and entrepreneurs from across the country and globe. I cannot wait to connect with you. Hey, everybody. We are back with Matt Lynch, the Director of Sustainability Initiatives for all of the University of Hawaii campuses. So Matt, um, question number six. I noticed on LinkedIn that you were super excited and humbled to be nominated by the Hawaii Venture Capital Association uh, for Social Impact Entrepreneur of the Year 2020, which awards an entrepreneur or company that substantially contributes to helping solve some of Hawaii's toughest problems. So my question is, um, I think this company is called Malka Market, right? If I've got that correct. Um, so what is your core mission and what problems are you out to solve? Yeah. Yeah. And what is the director of sustainability initiatives doing involved with the startup? <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So um, first off, the uh, nomination was very um, unexpected um, and uh, required some clarification <laughs> from the nominating committee about what exactly are you nominating here? And the nomination um, was, goes to the whole team that's creating that. So there's five of us um, and four of them are UH alumni. Our youngest member is a first year student at Windward Community College. Wow, that's epic. And she actually is, the, she's in, in most contexts, she's our boss because um, she directs our in-person markets. So mm -hmm. anyway, I should probably tell you what Malco Market's all about. So um, the Malco Market um, connects you to local artisans in Hawaii who are making handcrafted goods using materials sourced from invasive species or otherwise ethically sourced. And so our end goal is to create economic drivers for ecosystem restoration. And we do that a couple ways. First of all, by curating who's allowed to participate in our marketplace, um, which is eventually is intended to be an online platform. But in our first pilot year, given everybody's bandwidth constraints and full-time commitments elsewhere, um, we are had planned to produce for in-person markets um, so that we could understand our artisans context better and understand ways that the things that they're struggling with so that we might be able to have enough information to actually design an online um, or maybe they don't need online help maybe they need something else but we can design interventions to help them so getting dollars directly into the hands of artisans who are invested in our communities um, directly supports a local living economy. And then requiring those artisans to be radically mindful in how they're sourcing it. If we can create demand for um, 
invasive species, right? Then if we can replicate that out at scale, um, maybe we can shift that paradigm from being perennially um, short of having enough financial resources to deal with something like Albizia, for example, to being able to create a focused demand so that you have economic surplus that you can actually allocate towards removal, but not just removal, to the succession, which is the replacement of the invasive dominant um, ecosystem with a native or hybrid native ecosystem to improve watershed function um, and potentially even create um, additional crops, right? I mean, there's so many benefits from um, restoring native ecosystems. Mm -hmm. So that's the, um, that was literally the idea that, first of all, that um, earned that nomination and recognition from Hawaii Venture Capital Association, who hasn't invested a penny in us, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, also earned us the third place in the Purple Prize, um, which happened the summer before. And my intention of participating with Purple Prize was my due diligence to, before I um, worked with Purple Prize more closely, to be able to bring a version of the Purple Prize that's student-focused within the university. Mm -hmm. um, but the strength of that idea and the brilliance of my teammates, um, I guess, earned us a third, third place um, yeah. um, cash prize, which meant that we now have a startup social enterprise that um, we're mm -hmm. really excited about um, stewarding. So. To my point, Matt, in the last, when we were discussing the last question, which is we have this astonishing moment where we can step up and, and knock it out of the park. Um, we can do it individually. We can do it as in groups. Um, however it is that we choose to do it, we have these moments where we can really think deeply. It's, it feels very much like a permaculture moment, um, this Mauka market and what you guys are doing. And again, to put a, a you know, a, a Jedi spin on it, um, the fact that the Venture Capital Association here even recognized the sustainability element is, is super encouraging to me. I just tend to see that that cup is half full. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. It's sort of a Actually, coping, me coping mechanism if you know, you know, yeah. yeah, I have the same thing, Josh. I'm, I think I'm in a particularly dark mood today. <laughs> but the the I mean, one thing about commu effective communications is that you know you're, you're going to catch more flies with honey than you are with yeah, vinegar. And for so, sure. Uh, um, yeah. One of the beautiful things about Malka Market is it's such an aspirational story yeah. and it's both aspirational, inspirational, engaging, inviting. The, the messaging around that radical sourcing has really, really resonated and has really surprised us. That's very cool. So the, the next question, which is question number seven, is actually related. Um, on many days, Matt, when, when I'm driving to Manoa Pool to swim laps, I drive by a beautiful model home perched on the edge of the UH uh, Manoa's campus. And it's made from a rubbish tree, quote unquote, called Albizia, as you mentioned. Um, it was fantastic to watch this being built over weeks and months as I drove by. So my question is, what are your thoughts about, it's actually not specific to the home, but the question is more, what are your thoughts about project-based learning? Where are we getting it right? And where do we need to rethink it? And that could be K all the way through uh higher education sure 
just giving a pause there for the dogs. <laughs> um, so where do we where do we see highlights of project based learning? Yeah, yeah. Where what are, in what ways are we getting project based learning right, and in what ah, ways do yeah. we need to think about it again or rethink it? Yeah. Man, oh wow, there's so many examples. Like the uh, one thing that I'm really encouraged and nourished by is the creativity of our faculty. Mm. Um, and so I'm thinking specifically of um, Jackie Lindo in this context at Kapilani Community College. And she teaches Econ 101, mm. um, but she teaches it through a flipped classroom. And so she'll mm. take her students out to the fish pond. Um, she'll take her students out to the fish market. Um, and um, one of the projects that she has them do is like a YouTube video where they have to do a rap or a song that's talking about the basic economic principles that they've learned. Wow. Um, and she brings them through this immersive experiential process so that they get, they get an embodied learning of it. Um, and, you know, so even that project, it's a silly little, you know, music video, the creativity that that unleashes in our students. It's just so amazing. Sure. Mm -hmm. And you think about like, would you rather learn econ 101 that way or <laughs> <laughs> you know or sit I mean? in a lecture hall with 500 other people yeah exactly exactly right. so there are some really brilliant examples like across the state um of where this is being done in excellence um and from an institutional perspective going back to some of the earlier points that we discussed like i really feel like it's up to us as institutions there's indiv individuals embedded in institutions um, to rethink the role of institutions to be able to create conditions to foster this by design. Yeah. A lot of this stuff in happens in spite of, not because of. Um, and so understanding some of those barriers, the benefits are clear. Um, understanding the barriers that prevent us from doing this more by design is the first step to be able to adjust accordingly so that we can mm. create conditions that really do foster that. Mm. Wow. We're going to come back to that um, towards the end here. Um, but I'm going to move to question number eight. So, Matt, recently I dropped by a special workshop that was put on by the Professional Development Center at Hanahaoli School, um, which is directed by Amber Makayao, um, who, which is such a joyful thing to say, is my former student from 26 years ago at Punahou. Um the participants were spending an entire day, they were public, private, and charter school educators and education leaders. Um, they were spending an entire day working on how to insert climate change into existing K-12 curricula, be it math, science, history, art, whatever it is. So what are your thoughts about this? Are kids in elementary, middle, and high school ready to tackle climate change within their curricula, and even more specifically, Matt, in siloed curricula, which is my worry, yeah, that they're getting it in a fractured kind yep. of way. Yep. Why, and then the, the last part, it's a multi-part question, why a special session on a subject that should be front and center on educators' minds? Like, why do we have to have a special thing about that? It should be, anyway, so three, three parts to that, yeah. Yeah, this is a really good question for Krista. So I'm going to do my best to share from what I've learned from her. 
uh, who's she's basically spent her career thinking about this so she can get into like the development of the frontal lobe and yeah at what age neuroscience and right, exactly mm-hmm. um so um one of the key learnings i guess or observations from again that student focus group study was that if students are introduced to this information specifically climate change by just one lecture or in one class um especially at that age first and second year college uh krista tells me the frontal lobe is not developed enough for them to be able to actually process it wow it's just too much it's too much all at once and you risk creating so much dissonance that is disempowering um so i'm not sure how that directly translates to the earlier age um, cause that's not my experts expertise. I can't imagine how, um, covering it in just one class and not in others could be helpful at, mm. at, at even earlier ages. Um, some of the stories that the students shared, like the one I shared earlier, right? I was eight years old or whatever. Tell us that they're all, they are already learning about it somehow, some way. Yeah. Um, and so therefore we need to be able to understand how we can best support them to process this information. Mm. Um, one thing that was like really informative are these, there were kind of four archetypes of student profiles that kind of emerged these discussions. Um, the first two, you probably can think of specific students that might match these archetypes. Um, one being these like student green leader type of um, uh, archetype and these are the folks that they strongly self-identify with you know taking action uh, they might have a recycle tattoo literally one student had a recycle tattoo or they're at the front line of the straw ban campaigns or the divestment campaigns they their their self of se- sense of self and sense of identity is invested with this notion of, of taking personal action civic action somehow um the second archetype is um, kind of referred to as like culturally connected, cultural connections. They may not think of themselves as quote unquote sustainability practitioners, but their lived practices are very strong sustainability practices. So Mm -hmm. they might hunt or they might fish or they might grow food with their family. And they probably won't say that, yeah, they're not even knowledgeable about sustainability, but because it's ingrained, they've learned it through their cultural practices. It's clear that they are exhibiting strong sustainability behaviors, right? Cultural, culturally connected. Um, those two archetypes of students um, probably represent the smaller overall number. And so the other two archetypes that I'm gonna describe probably represent the larger number of students. Um, one of those is, I used the term earlier, cognitive dissonance. Um, and these are students that they're aware that there are these issues, but for whatever reason, it might be socioeconomic, um, it might be developmental, it could be any number of reasons. They're just unable to take appropriate actions in response to this information that they have. A lot of it, you know, um, you saw the Alice report, so we know yeah. how many families are just barely making it. A lot of it, especially in Hawaii, is is related to socioeconomic. Like, I know that I should be using one of these hydro flasks, but I can't afford $30 to buy it. So I'm gonna go and buy bottled water instead. Yeah. Um, so imagine that the small instances of dissonance throughout the day, 
that just add up and add up and what kind of latent emotional state that might lead to before learning can ever occur. Um, and if I forget, remind me to cover the emotions that were revealed through this student survey, um, student focus group survey. The last archetype that is the most worrying one, um, we've termed karmic retribution. And this is a really disempowered state. Um, it's kind of like almost nihilistic. Oh, we, we've got it coming to us. Like Mother Earth is going to do what Mother Earth is going to do. Um, and these aren't fixed states. These aren't like ways of being. I want to also, you know, caution against massive generalizations. They're useful entry points to deeper investigation. And we suspect that they're also fluid. So you might oscillate between one or more of these kind of archetypes throughout the day, depending on your experience, your lived experience through the campus. Chris was describing these paths of cognitive dissonance through the campus. Like you roll up to the campus and you park your car, first of all, in a parking lot. Uh, maybe you walk past someone who's idling in their car um, so that the AC is on because there's not enough alternative modes of transportation to the campus. And then as you're walking to find your first class, you finish the plastic bottle water or canned drink that you have because you're not able to afford the fancy thermal flask. And you go to recycle it because you know that's what you should do and then no recycling option is provided and so on and so forth and da da da, da. And it's like the death of a thousand cuts, right? Then you go into a class and your teacher's telling you about these global challenges and how they express themselves locally and is saying, look, plastic is a problem. We need to be doing these things. And the words don't match the music, right? <laughs> of their lived experience on that campus. Um, so what are the ways that we can shift these cognitive dissonance or these paths of dissonance on the campus to paths of cognitive resonance where what, I mean, you, you imagine that you're able to, you know, participate in a carpool or a rideshare to get to the campus and uh, the campus actually provides you with a campus branded, you know, thermoflask as well as mess kit so that you can carry that around. And all of these things are reinforcing the things and are actually creating opportunities for you as a lone individual to be able to contribute to these in some small way to these massive problems, to solving these massive problems. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's the, um, wow. I don't know how that relates to the earlier age, mm -hmm. but I think that they can certainly inform how we think about that. Well, yeah. And to your point about the fact that the, you're not stuck in any one particular archetype, you're, this, you're, you're growing. It's a fluid situation. Your brain is changing. And that if we do this, not in an isolated or siloed way, if we make it part of the whole culture of a campus or the culture of a particular school, then <clears throat> we can actually move more and more of them towards the two earlier archetypes, the first two. Um, I just... I'm just fascinated by the opportunity that's out there in front of us because it's not just about specifically some one idea of sustainability. It's actually about the development of the whole child, which is what we're having, what we're talking about a lot in K-12. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to that in a second, in the last question, because I want to talk about what happens when you move out of K-12 into higher education. But that's just, that's so interesting. So, Okay. So question number nine, um, I read this fascinating interview in Fast Company with Patagonia founder 
um, and chairman. Uh, I, is it Yvonne Chouinard? Am I saying that correctly? I always butcher his pronunciation too, so I'll leave you That's to it. <laughs> best, best I can do. Um, he explained what he and his company are doing to save planet Earth. So my question, Matt, is like, what could our K-12 public, private, and charter schools be doing to ensure that our Mother Earth survives and thrives? And I know that's a huge question, but it's just think of, think of who's listening to us today, if they're mostly teachers. And, you know, here's a moment where you can speak to them and say, here's, here's something, here's what you can be doing. Hmm. Yeah, thank you for that question. <clears throat> you know, what's alive for me right now in this moment, as you ask that, is some of the specific words that you used. And I think that we as teachers, educators, as anyone who has influence, um, especially over our young ones, we really need to pay close attention to the words that we use because they reveal <laughs> the entanglements in the unhealthy systems that we find themselves in. Yeah, and so sure. if we can, and, and these are really small, but really powerful things that we can do to be able to withhold our participation in those unhealthy systems and to be able to actually recognize that entanglement so that we can make different choices. And the specific word choice that I'm pointing to is save mother earth. Um, and I'm a huge fan of Patagonia and I think it's Yves Chouinard. <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, many other um, thought leaders and at, like who are actually going out and doing and are experimenting with ways that we can be different. Um, that speaks, that language, Save Mother Earth, speaks to that fundamental separation that we talked about earlier as one of mm. the fundamental root causes, seeing ourselves as separate and apart from Mother Earth, separate and apart from Kaimaki, where I'm at, separate and apart from Oahu, that is the root cause of this. And so if we can begin to heal that, then I wonder what might be possible and what, what kind of fractal impact that might have as mm. it continues to replicate out. And that's why, um, a lot of the work that you know the immersion schools are doing, um, the charter schools, um, a lot of the focus of even my work, um, both personally and professionally, has been to better understand and better support Native Hawaiians in this place as folks who hold those threads intact, however tenuously they may be holding on to that, their survival, their ability to thrive and flourish directly impacts my ability to thrive and flourish. And those threads to those indigenous ancestral knowledge systems that I have been severed from, I can reconnect to those by being in active relationship with the peoples of this place. Mm. And also being in active relationship with this place right? Mm. The peoples of this place and this place are not separate. Um, and the more that we can begin to embody that so that that realization is passed on to the next generation and embodied to the next generation, to me, that's the crux of it all. And if we can start to help people reawaken to that, then we start to ask 
much different questions, which lead to much different realities. Mm-hmm. You know, if I had my magic wand <laughs> and me slipping into the pessimistic here a little bit, but maybe the optimistic, I, I too am troubled by the separation of place and, um, and those elements. And so if I could wave my magic wand, the, the 188 some odd public schools that we have, I would simply level them right now, just level them because they create a separate space for school and it allows us to, to relieve ourselves of our responsibility for our kids. We drop them off, we pick them up. Um, if we could completely scrape them and start all over again and create an integrated model in which learning happens all across the community, um, that would be my magic wand. We would start like that. It would be the biggest public works project in the history of the state. It would probably cost a trillion dollars to do, but what the heck, um, you know? <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna push back a little bit on that um, because I, I certainly understand and appreciate um, where that's coming from and the the passion and deeply held convictions where that's coming from, um, and. I actually think that our task is to repurpose these institutions. So instead yeah. of raising it, how do we actually go and retrofit them? Yeah. You know, because these are existing resources that are on the table. Um, and I also wonder, like, so you described, you know, dropping your kids off and absconding responsibility to that place that you've dropped them off to, to handle their education because you're entangled in a system that requires you to exchange hours for, for dollars so that you can literally put food on the table. But how does being homeschooling or remote learning with your kids for the next six weeks, possibly longer, yeah. shift our perceptions of that, right? Like, right, right. I mean, what if these the infrastructure that is in place could be rethought of instead of as this place that you just drop folks off and pick them up? What if they were, what if we reimagined them hmm. as thriving and vibrant nodes and hubs for like, deep community interaction, right. you yeah. know, and yeah. intergenerational learning and all of those things. Like, mm. yeah. So as it turns out, that's actually what I think is happening all across the state of Hawaii. And I'm super excited about it, that even in the circumstances of these concrete schools, extraordinary things are going on. So my last question, Matt, has to do with that. Um, I've been thinking about it. I've been talking about apparent disconnects between K-12 and higher education um, for more than five years now. Um, and today in 2020, I am as worried as I've ever been about this particular topic. And it's because of what I see happening in our K-12 schools across the state. Um, as, as K-12 shifts towards project-based, problem-based, challenge-based, essential question-based, place-based, culture-based, et cetera, all the hyphenated um, versions of teaching and learning, but all under the umbrella of experiential um, and student agency-based learning. I see kids ready to roll up their sleeves and do stuff in college only to discover higher education is still dominated by large lecture courses twice a week and, and with a midterm and a final and maybe a paper. Um, so what are your thoughts about this? And, and is higher education making the shift to meet the, the, the demands of these kids who are so so do oriented. I want to do stuff. Um, and many of them, as you described in those two archetypes, like ready to do things that are, they, they want to make their communities better. Um, in what ways is higher education responding to that? 
mm. from your from your perch mm. um from my perspective just looking out across higher ed writ large um i think higher ed is struggling to recognize the ways that their environment has changed is changing um and basically what i was saying to the board of regents you know last year um about losing relevance and resonance to our students context that's what you're describing right here yeah. and that is not unique to university of hawaii um and that said so that that would be kind of my just sweeping assessment of generalizations assessment of kind of existing conditions writ large that said there are these really amazing bright spots that emerge, right? And this happens, um, Margaret Wheatley and Deborah Fries put forth a thought paper around cultivating emergence uh, for social transformation that um, has been really helpful for me to um, understand some of these trends and to rethink our roles and what we might be able to do. And they describe that when a system goes into decline, there are key patterns that emerge. Um, this might relate to natural systems or to man-made systems. Um, but basically, as think of it as an organism. As an organism's um, environment starts to change, evolutionary pressures increase the rate of mutation, right? And so these new experiments pop up in response to those changing conditions. So these are new trailblazers and innovators that are trying out new things mm. because they're recognizing that the, the conditions have changed. Um, and some of us um, are in positions of those systems or superorganisms that are going into decline and can recognize both of those things. One, that things have changed and that we're at risk of declining. And two, that there's this emergence, there's this beautiful emergence of really innovative, um, creative solutions that are responding to that change. And so our role uh, as um, those of us who have access to influence and resources that are embedded in these legacy systems that are in decline, our role is to funnel resources to this emergent network so that they can begin to connect and see each other. Our role is to name, to connect, to illuminate and to nourish that beautiful emergence that is calling forth the new paradigm, the new system that's emerging, right? Wow. Wow. And each of those trailblazers hold a piece. They hold an individual vision of what that alternative future is, what that new system that is emerging is. And as we start to connect them, you start to build this individual and collective vision mm -hmm. of what might be possible. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you think about that and relate it from, you know, a legacy institution to like an organism going through evolutionary processes in nature, these are just natural cycles of things. Change doesn't happen in five-year strategic planning increments. Change is constant and dynamic and fluid and our roles as change agents or enablers of change embedded within legacy institutions is to actually create conditions for that beautiful emergence to be able to arise. And eventually what happens in nature it plays out also in man-made systems and structures, right? When yeah. an institution or an organization is no longer fit to its context, it can no longer exist in the same way. And it's, it can either recognize and embrace that 
or it can fight it. Mm. Um, and so myself and others within the institution are doing everything that we can to be able to help embrace and cultivate and encourage um, and are working from the premise of that, that fractal premise that we'll do mm. what we can with what we have where we're at, uh, knowing and understanding our enmeshment and entanglement within overall systems, responding to how that system is and doing what we can to shift that system simultaneously. It's a beautiful wow. dance. Yeah. Wow. And, I, and I'm privileged to be part of a network of people K-12 who are doing exactly the same thing. Um, and it's really, it's awesome work to be part of that. I love that notion of the emergence and then you, then you respond to these things that are coming up out of these systems. So Matt, before I let you go, I, I noticed you list yourself as a compulsive shenanigator <laughs> on LinkedIn. So this sounds like a lot of fun. So what the heck is a compulsive <laughs> shenanigator? I got to know. This is, this is why my dad told me that I need to revise that. <laughs> he was so worried that people won't take me seriously if I keep that on the, <laughs> on the professional bio. It's, I, it's, I, it may, it's a family trait. We are rascals by nature. Um, mm. And so we can't help, but we have this really morbid sense of humor <laughs> that I think has helped us survive through adversity and past. Um, and so I can't help myself. I'm constantly getting myself into all kinds of trouble. Um, I just um, do what I can to surround myself with amazing people to make sure that the kinds of trouble we are getting into are worthwhile, delicious, and are <laughs> geared towards like cultivating that beautiful emergence. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. So Matt Lynch, Director of Sustainability Initiatives for all of University of Hawaii's campuses. Thank you for being part of this On the Road episode of the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. Thanks, Matt. Mahalo. And now it's time for a listener review. This one comes from Dr. Sandy Camilli, who wrote the following under the title, No More Monday Blues. Mahalo to the team who has put this inspiring podcast together. It has become my go-to mental break on Mondays, whether I'm walking, traveling, or just taking a break from my hamster wheel schedule. The stories are authentic, relatable, and provide just-in-time professional learning for leaders on the go. Next Monday can't come soon enough. Thank you, Sandy, for your inspiring words. We strive in season two to continue bringing you stories that are authentic and relatable. The What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Your host is me, Josh Rapoon. My editor, show consultant, and sound engineer is Daniel Gilad at DG Sound Creations. Daniel, an amazing musician, created the original music heard in this show. To learn more about Daniel or to hire him for your next music gig, see our show notes. This series is funded by education change agent Ted Dintersmith, executive producer of the documentary film Most Likely to Succeed and author of the acclaimed book What School Could Be. Send your feedback to mltsinhawaii at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at mltsinhawaii. Finally, please like our Most Likely to Succeed in Hawaii Facebook page and YouTube channel. Until the next episode, please stay safe, wear your masks, keep socially distant, and be kind to one another. Our world needs an abundance of kindness and compassion right now. 